Welcome to the podcast of the American Psychoanalytic Association. I'm your host, Dr. Gail Saltz. I'm a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist, and this is Psychoanalysis and You. My guest today is Adele Tutter. She's an associate professor of psychiatry at the Columbia University Vaginal School of Medicine and is the director of the Psychoanalytic Studies Program in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. In her award-winning scholarship, she explores the underpinnings of creativity and the relationship between the artist and their art, including the glass house designed by architect Philip Johnson, the short stories of Raymond Carver, the photography of Josef Sudek and Francesca Woodman, and the operas of Leosh Janacek, the fashion of Alexander McQueen, and the old master paintings of Nicholas Poussin. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So this is quite an eclectic group of subjects in different areas <laughs> of creativity. So how have you chosen the subjects to write about? Well, they usually start with chance encounters that lead me to be very curious and lead me to ask the question, is there a story here? A story that I can understand? And it really could be anything. So for example, with Philip Johnson and the Glass House, I was first invited to the Glass House by Dorothy Dunn, who opened the Glass House to the public for the National Trust. She's a good friend, and for Christmas, she gave me two tickets to tour the glass house. And when I got there, I was just simply floored, because in the middle of this one-story glass house, in which there are no walls and no windows, just walls of glass, in the middle of this house stood an old master painting on an easel, and it had been there since the glass house was built. And it was blistering, and literally blistering in the sun. And it turns out that it had undergone several restorations to try to protect it. And Philip Johnson also had an art museum on actually two, a, a painting gallery and a sculpture gallery on the premises of the glass house with humidity control, temperature control. So why was this old master sitting in the sun? It was also the only old master painting uh, that he owned. And so immediately I wondered, what is the significance of this old master painting that was so important that it be installed in the glass house and never, ever moved? And that led to an essay on precisely that subject, which actually then became three essays and finally became a book. It also led to my, an interest in Poussin as such that I began to write essays on, on Poussin. Uh, one of the funny things about psychoanalysis is that it teaches you to follow your nose and to follow associations. And so when I began to read about Poussin in order to make sense of the Poussin in the glass house, I read about his Ovidian themes. And it turns out that his first and last paintings were on the theme of Apollo and Daphne. And I began to read Ovid and Apollo and Daphne. And that jogged my memory of seeing a remarkable exhibition of photographs by a young woman in 1982, a long time ago. And one of the things that she did was she photographed herself with her arms in, encased in bracelets of birch bark. And I remembered that in conjunction with Apollo and Daphne. And so that was Francesca Woodman. And I returned to her as a subject 
and ended up writing about her. And so a lot of it has to do with chance, but then also the connections that I make in my mind. So just like a psychoanalyst in their office, the exactly. So being intensely curious and then following your own associations and do thoughts about the actual life events or early life or evident, let's say, maybe even pathologies or thought process or character of the of the maker, of the creator, of the artist, do those do those come to bear in your in Oh, your oh, absolutely. And I think that this is one of the ways in which a psychoanalytic approach can sometimes sort of vary from traditional art historical approaches in that I'm intensely interested in the life of the artist and in all of their productions, their entire corpus of work, and also the words that they have spoken and written down. I try to get the whole story of the life behind the art, and that's not always fashionable for a very long time. It was in academia, it was very important to look at the work of art in isolation as a, as a subject onto itself and not to, con- so to say, so to speak, uh, contaminate it with biographical data that might sway you as to what you thought about the art. And I really find that it's quite the opposite. It's the biographical data that helps you to understand the significance of that work of art to the maker. So if you're interested in the relationship between the artist and their art, you need to consider their life and what they've said and what they've told people. Do you therefore think, and you know, this is really, I'm just asking what you think as a psychoanalyst, that the maker they bring, this is their creation Mm -hmm. from their mind. And we need to understand their mind to further understand their creation. Absolutely. And then the viewer brings their own mind. Yes. And how do you understand that as a psychoanalyst, the impact of that on the viewing? Well, I think it's huge. And for me, the biggest impact is in my choice of things to, to study. And so even though there are chance encounters, there are, I have many chance encounters. The ones that grab me have everything to do with what I bring to the work of art. So whether it be something incongruous, like this old master painting in the glass house, or Francesca Woodman's work on trees. I grew up with a father who planted 40,000 trees in his lifetime. So for me, trees are very important. And trees also led me to be interested in the photography of Josef Sudek, who also photographed many trees occupy a huge part of his work. And what was the meaning for him of trees? For Sudek, Sudek lost his right arm in World War I. And he lost a limb, and trees have limbs, and trees have always been uh, targets of anthropomorphization. So uh, trees have been used as metaphors for humans for millennia. So we have feet that sit on the ground, we are rooted in our homes, we have limbs, we bear fruit, and we senesce and we die, and we have lifetimes that are remarkably similar sometimes. So Josef Sudek began to photograph trees that were mutilated, that were that had lost their limbs, sometimes just reduced to stumps. But he also would take uh, pictures of trees that had been rejuvenated, that had grown new sprouts, so to speak. And so for him, he was known to lug his camera, his huge, large format camera on wooden legs 
He would lug that all over Prague, up and down the hills. And it was almost as if his camera became a replacement limb. And he used his creativity as a way to mitigate the loss of, of his limb. So to some degree, these productions, these photographs, were a, a reworking, sometimes perhaps an undoing, a repair yes. of the loss that he had suffered yes. over and over again. Yes. They were a way for him to process the trauma, for him to rework it, and to transform it into a work of aesthetic beauty. In one picture, he poses himself. It's so fascinating, really. As a young photographer, just learning his trade, he took a self-portrait in which he's turned away so that you can't even see that he's missing an arm. And it's this dapper young gentleman. You'd never know there was anything wrong with him. And then the next self-portrait, you see, you see that there's something missing. And then the next self-portrait that we see years later, you see him from the side that's missing the arm. And it's so painfully obvious. And yet he's posed himself in front of a tree and there's a branch that's growing out in the direction of his arm. And it's just so poignant to see. And yet it's also quite sad. So it's almost as if he's gone from denying the trauma by posing himself as though nothing is wrong to gradually accepting the reality, but also mitigating the reality through the, the aesthetic transformation. And there are multiple examples of this throughout his oeuvre, which is really extremely touching. Wow. Just hearing it is extremely touching. Fascinating metaphor. Is there anything that has really surprised you in what you've uncovered in, in, in essentially analyzing these artists and their art? Yes. And that's what makes this really so enjoyable and so fun and really compelling is that following small details reveals so much to look at a piece of art and know as a psychoanalyst that there are truths there, but they're not necessarily transparent and to delve below the surface and discover things that are, are really fascinating. So for example, I began to study Raymond Carver because of an article in The New Yorker that described his relationship with his editor, the notorious Gordon Lish. And so I started analyzing the correspondence between the two of them. And that led to a deep interest in Raymond Carver. My second article on him had to do with his use of his writing short stories as a therapeutic endeavor, a lot like Yosef Sudek. And so what I decided to do was to follow a theme throughout his stories. And I chose the theme fire because there are so many short stories that, that include an element of fire. And what was so amazing to see was that at the beginning, fire for him was something that was destructive, something that could destroy things. So for example, at one point in his life, he threw a whole box of fire starter logs in the fireplace when he came to visit his wife on Thanksgiving, his ex-wife, um, and who had been remarried, he came to visit and was so angry that he threw a box of starter logs into the fireplace and there was a, a huge explosion. And he wrote about that in a short story in disguised form. But by the end of his short story, Ouvre, 
fire has become something Promethean and life-saving. It's become a means of warmth. It's a means to survive the cold, so to speak. And so it's changed from, and I think it, it traces an evolution in him of a kind of a destructive rage into a more gentle, generative, life-giving preoccupation. So you can see sort of the the individual maker's trajectory. Mm -hmm. And you also point out that, as we often do find as analysts, something, some theme or some object has more than one meaning. Oh, yes. And and which is a, a profoundly psychoanalytic idea. And that meaning can change and transform Yes, I, I was really quite stunned to see that evolution in, in the short story writing, as well as to see that Raymond Carver remained in love with his first wife throughout his life, even though they separated and he remarried. What becomes evident in his short stories is the degree to which he regrets the dissolution of his marriage and this enduring passion for his first love. It's really very romantic and and quite sad. Do you find, or do you think, I guess I should say really, that this outlet of creativity, which to some degree you're showing the ways in which it's therapeutic for Mm -hmm. these individual artists, is this something that analysts often address in their office with patients, um, encourage in any sort of way as a therapeutic mechanism? Sure. I, I think most people would. I think most analysts I know would welcome the analyzand or the, the person in therapy to come and to show them the things that they're working on. That wasn't always so. It used to be that if somebody brought in a picture or a, a short story, the act of bringing that in would be analyzed and the, the work of art might not have even been looked at. But I always encourage my, my patients to show me what they are working on or what they're thinking about. I also want to know about the movies that they've seen. I've had patients who were really not able to talk to me at all unless it was in the context of talking about a book that they were reading or talking about a movie that interested them. And that would be the only way that they could really settle down and be comfortable because otherwise it would just be talking about themselves. Not really, I think, understanding that you're always talking about yourself, but it was a way for them to relax and be less nervous about it. So a vehicle, a displaced vehicle, yeah. felt felt more comfortable, and so yeah. you do encourage that. You oh, do absolutely, that with your patients, absolutely, and I love seeing and treating creative people. Do you think that people seek you out, or at least when they're in treatment with you, become aware of the work you do outside the office? Yeah, some people do. I think seek me out precisely because I am interested in art and creativity for sure. And do you feel that that affects the treatment in one way or another, that they know? Most certainly, because um, I also have written quite a, quite a lot of art criticism, and I think that many times they come more or less aware of a concern that I will be critical of their work. So in and, that and, sense, and, the transference is to what? The art critic, the critical mother? the Yes, what, what? <laughs> exactly. And that is something you work with. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And is it usually because there is a critical mother in their their background? (laughs) There's always a critical mother (laughs) or critical father, for sure. Yes, I've had 
people in my practice who would not show me works until they were published and therefore had the stamp of approval. Oh, interesting. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I did want to touch on Alexander McQueen because, Uh of course, I think most of the lay public would not think of fashion as something that is art. It certainly can be. Absolutely. It certainly can be. And I think that that is more and more fashion as an art historical discipline is far more accepted. The Alexander McQueen that I saw was a show at the Metro, at the Metropolitan in the Fashion Institute. And of course, he had a very, very sad ending. Oh, what, what, terribly sad. How, how did his, as a, from an artistic point of view, what did you come to understand about his psyche and and his life and, and his death yeah. via his fashion? His fashion is all about transformation itself. It's about using clothes to transform the person within into something else. And sometimes these were just wild, fantastical creatures, sort of metamorphized. So in in one case, there's a there's a, a, a it's not even an item of clothing. It's an item, I guess you could call it, of adornment. It's like an external spine that leads to this rather long, spiky tail, evocative of a dinosaur with a with a with an armature. And so I think that there is certainly in his work a kind of a, a theme of body armor almost. And I think that that tells us a lot about an extremely vulnerable self. And as most people know, he committed suicide after the death of his mother. And he was very close to her. I don't know that much. I, you know, I, I should know more about their relationship, but the art certainly brings to mind an exceptionally sensitive, vulnerable person who was not happy in his own body. So this was a wish fulfillment yes. to create these, these armors and dormants and transformation. It was a wish fulfillment. It was a defense. Absolutely. And the designs are, are so fantastical and so monumental. They speak to a wish for self, for self transformation. Do you personally write, create in some way that you find is transformational for you? Are your productions parts of your mind in a way that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like these artists that you write about? Sure. Sure. And, and I, I, one, one chapter that I've written in a book that I edited on grief, because I'm very interested in the, the use of, of creativity to process not only trauma, but, but the trauma that we all experience, which is grief. And I wrote, I wrote a chapter in my own edited volume that I edited with, I was a co-editor with Leon Wormser, the late Leon Wormser. So absolutely amazing and wonderful person. I wrote a chapter about Janacek, the composer, and Sudek, and my father, and my who was also like them from the Czech Republic, from a small town in the Czech Republic, which is one of the reasons why I was drawn to Janacek and Sudek, because they were Czech. As I mentioned, Sudek lost his right arm in the war, and Janacek wrote a piece of work for a young man who was a pianist who also lost his right arm in the war. And he wrote a piano concerto for orchestra and piano left hand only. This is just one example of a kind of a resonance between Sudek and Janacek. Janacek lost both of his, both of his children when they were young from illness and was childless. Uh, Sudek was childless. 
I could go on and on, but they both suffered a tremendous loss. And my father also suffered tremendous loss because he was essentially forced to escape from the Czech Republic in 1948 because he was a political dissident and there had been an, an attempt on his life. And so he just fled on foot, uh, leaving his entire family behind and eventually making his way, of course, to Brooklyn. Where, where else would he come? And um, that's where I grew up. But I grew up in the context of this terrible loss. My mother also had lost both of her parents and was an orphan. And so when they met, they clicked. But it left a legacy of grief. And so I think that in writing about artists and their grief, it's helped me find my way through my grief and my, and my, my inherited grief. In 1989, when the wall came down, my father was able to go back to the Czech Republic and establish connections to his family again. And it was sort of like a miracle, really. And so I think for me, writing is also somewhat miraculous. In that sense, would you say, you know, I, to me, that sounds like an amazing example of that what we do in the consulting room as psychoanalysts is really not just we treat a patient, but it's a collaboration of our own experiences and our understanding of our own experiences and our training and the understanding of another's experience. Uh, yes. And I think that there has been so much development in understanding the importance of the role of that relationship and of being an authentic and real person in the room. To that end, I offer more disclosure than most orthodox analysts. My my patients usually know more about my life than normal, but that feels right for me, and I think it feels right for them. And, you know, it's very much, I think, a case of physician heal thyself. The work that we do in the consulting room, it's also beneficial for me. It helps me to understand myself and my reactions to people. It can be difficult, but it's almost always humbling, and I, that's a good thing. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank well, you. thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. You, Dr. Adele Tutter. And now for some Freudian quickies. You sent in your questions for an analyst, and I grabbed an analyst with an answer. Has anyone had a perfectly balanced, non-traumatic childhood? No. <laughs> I don't believe so. Okay. We've all been injured, more or less, in different ways. Those of us who've had loving parents without too much conflict are very lucky. But the human condition is that we are injured people. And that's okay. That's who we are. We have the gift of life, and that transcends everything. And the function of therapy is to help us live life when some of the stuff from our childhood gets in the way. Has anyone had a perfectly balanced, non-traumatic childhood? I think this idea, and I've been seeing it all over social media lately, of like what's considered trauma. Everything's considered trauma. Nothing's considered trauma. Like who is the definer of what trauma is? And I think we've all heard the comparison that like two people can be born in the same household and have the same exact experience, but they might have a very, very different reaction or a very different developmental trajectory because of it. And so I think, I guess I would say, no, there is no normal. Has anyone had a perfectly balanced, non-traumatic childhood? Absolutely. I haven't met them yet, but absolutely. 
If you have a question, really any question for a psychoanalyst, please send it to APSAPodcast at gmail.com and we will try to feature it in a future Freudian quickie. For more information about the American Psychoanalytic Association, go to www.apsa.org. Till next time. Thank you for listening in today. Here at Psychoanalysis and You, and we at the American Psychoanalytic Institute, hope to introduce you to the many ways psychoanalytic thought affects the world around us, and especially you. Please leave any comments and requests for us at APSAPodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. If you found this episode useful, please share this podcast with a friend or colleague. And we will be back next month with another episode of Psychoanalysis and You.